0: Lori R. King is the creator of the Mary Russell and Sherlock Holmes series. It's been a long journey from the uh, beekeeper's apprentice to the Isle of the Mad. Her new novel is Riviera Gold. Thank you for joining me, Lori.
1: Thank you, Rick.
0: This book is such a delight. It is the vacation we all need. It has a beautiful time, a beautifully evoked place. I, you must have had quite a bit of fun researching this one.
1: <laughs> I, I, I entertain myself all the time, as you know, Rick.
0: Now, uh, when you originally decided to to do this, did, did you, you wanted to go to Monaco? I mean, who doesn't want to go to the French Riviera? <laughs> <laughs> so, so talk about you know, just in terms of figuring out a way to get your characters to a place where you want to go. Is it that, or did they get there before you?
1: Sometimes they do. Uh, Sometimes I kind of stumble across a place and say, oh, maybe I'll write a book here. But in this case, yeah, you're right. Um, At the end of, not the last book, but the one before that, the murder of Mary Russell, Mm -hmm. uh, Mrs. Hudson, their beloved keeper, is for various reasons leaving England and Mary Russell says but you have to tell me where you're going and Mrs. Hudson says you know I've always been fond of Monte Carlo so you know with no more of a hint than that and not really quite sure and um, either the character or the author um, being quite sure that's where Mrs. Hudson ended up um, we set off from uh, the island of the mad to to the next book and ended up, as you say, in the south of France, and and indeed, um, find Mrs. Hudson there, which is, uh, I think, not a spoiler, because you kind of figure she's there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, now, uh, I have to say, it was odd, but I, I admit, when, when I'm reading a book, I kind of, you know, use a highlighter to highlight things, and one of the first things I highlighted, for some reason, was this description of a seaplane, a- and, then today, when I thought about it, I thought, "Well, you know, if you put a seaplane on the wall in the first act." <laughs> <laughs> now, have you been in a seaplane before? Is that did you research that by that aspect as well?
1: Do you know? I, do you know, I haven't. I I don't. I don't think I've been in a seaplane. No, I'm sure I haven't. Um, actually, we were. <laughs> my daughter and I had planned this summer to, to go and spend some time with the the grandkids uh, up near um, Victoria in Canada. And one of the things that made us decide was to look at the, the seaplanes that take off from Vancouver. There's a lovely um, area right outside the town that <laughs> you can go and watch the planes come up and down. And I thought, Oh, that sounds, that looks really cool. Let's, let's go do that. And of course, nobody's traveling at all this year. So, um, but at some point we'll we'll get up there and I'll get to go on a seaplane. But no, no, I have been on a small plane, but not one that lands and takes off from water.
0: Yeah, a good timing for that Riviera vacation too, by the way. <laughs> 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 Since nobody can
1: go anywhere anyway, you might as well go there in the pages of a book.
0: That's right. It, it, it's such a, a wonderful feel to it because Mary Russell has a, a very pragmatic and practical approach, but she's certainly not immune to enjoying her circumstances, is she? <laughs> she,
1: she she takes her pleasures where she can, yes.
0: Uh, early on, you you say that the hotel was where Edwardian formality lay outside. It was all twenties, so you have put us in a really great kind of uh, place. A kind of a there's a nice little bit of contrast, a friction there. Talk about that place and evoking that place.
1: Well, you know, it was a really interesting period that set in 1925, um, and it was a very interesting period in a lot of France, but. On the Riviera, you had these two people, the Murphys, Sarah and Gerald Murphy, who had a gift for bringing people together. They had a gift for entertaining, not in a formal sense, but in a sort of almost let's create a family sort of sense. They were a little bit older than a lot of the um, artists and writers who showed up in Paris in the 20s after the, the Great War. And they actually had kids, which a lot of the people like Fitzgerald and Hemingway and stuff were just beginning to do. Um, and and they started um, they started giving a home in the sense of here's where you can have good conversation and a nice meal to all these odds and ends who turned up in Paris during during this period. And in nineteen twenty three, Couple of years before this book is set, Cole Porter and his wife happened to rent a house on the edge of the the, the Cap d'Antibes, this peninsula, and um, and invited their old friends, they were college friends, um, Sarah and Gerald Murphy, down to stay with them for a few weeks. Well, the the Porters didn't bother to go back they didn't like it as well as they liked Venice but the Murphy's just fell in love with it they fell in love with the 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 beach and the air and the light and the people and all the possibilities and also the fact that it was a really cheap area to, to live in so your dollar went a long way in France and especially in the south of France in the summertime because this was an area nobody except the locals stayed around it was hot it was humid It was regarded as being um, the place to get away from in the summertime. It was a great, booming resort in the wintertime. But as soon as May came around on the calendar, everybody left. Everybody went back to their homes in Northern Europe or Russia or wherever they were from.
0: What a fascinating turnaround.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And the the Murphys had been raised in the eastern United States. And, of course, in the days before air conditioning, you just get used to the heat. So to them it was not that bad, and you get a breeze off the off the ocean um, at night, and it, they they thought it was just great. So they ended up moving there, and bought a villa, um, restored it, and became the center of this American community that was mostly a summer community. They lived there more or less year round. They had an apartment in in Paris that they kept, but I mean I was just fascinated by this period of 1925 because it's the beginning of an entirely new era along the Riviera, defining what the Riviera was um, after after this period.
0: You know, it, it's also, too, the kind of the beginning or towards the end, both uh, of the Gilded Age, not uh, dissimilar from our current situation. Um, but I, I think that you do a good job of evoking that kind of, glamour and it, what i thought was re- really fascinating was your ability to mix in all these great people who you know the the real and, and the the fictional um when you're talking about cole porter i was remembering uh uh sherlock holmes's uh experiences with Cole Porter from before the, from the Isle of the Man. I thought this is just so much fun <laughs> you, you kind yeah. of like have a, a whole, it's like you have a whole menu of wonderful characters you can pop in.
1: Well, that's one of the things that when, that I look for when I start thinking about doing a book set in a particular place in time is who was there. <clears throat> so I'm writing about you know San Francisco in 1924. Well, who should be there except Dashiell Hammett? And I think, aha! I need Dashiell Hammett. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, various uh, various um, you know army people, the the governor of um, Morocco, the and so when I go to the south of France, I look to see who's there, and the the Murphys are there, and they bring with them all kinds of people like. Um John dos Passos and F. Scott Fitzgerald and his wife Zelda and Picasso and a little early for Hemingway, Hemingway doesn't show up till later later in that year but um but you know all these people that are that are on this very lively American side of things, and then you know twenty or thirty miles down the coast, you have Monaco, which in nineteen twenty five is really fashionable it's a place that used to be popular uh, it's a place where your sort of aunt goes to you know to feel very <laughs> racy um it's it, the, the the monaco uh, the rulers of monaco both the royal family and the the people who own the casino um were about to have conversations about how to renovate it and that but that didn't start till the following year and in 1925 it's still in this kind of in-between area of faded glory um and and you have again you have all these really interesting people there you have these russians that um that this is where the russian world, the aristocracy, went during the winter times all through the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And so you have a few of them that managed to escape the Russian Revolution. You have um, this this awful man, Basil Zaharoff, who was an arms dealer who made an absolute fortune off of arms to both sides during the Great War. Um, and you have i mean you have this fascinating variety of people including to my great joy lily langtree <laughs> I, I i must have Basil zaharov and lily langtree <laughs> I, I
0: i can imagine so it it's so fun to experience for me that the history as fiction and, and to enjoy all their their personalities could you talk about like giving the the people who you um, read about in history and you know dry dusty books, bringing them to this kind of vivid and really fun life.
1: Yeah, some of them are some of them are easier than others. Um, a lot of them have uh, collected letters that you can find.
2: Mm. Um,
1: they have very good uh, biographies. Sometimes autobiographies are good, though often they are a little bit overly digested and worked, um, you know, the, the sort of stories that they've told a hundred times before kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but and, I, and I think that it's always a balancing act between getting all the details right and allowing the person to sort of develop freely as a fictional character.
0: Well, one of the things I think you do really well is getting the details right because when I read this, I, I feel, wow, this is an amazing work of research, but it doesn't feel like research <laughs> because it's really easy to read and fun. I mean, you must have some kind of special vacuum dust filter in there to, to keep the dust of history away. It's not history. Um, it's fun.
1: Okay, Okay, Rick, how would you know if I made it all up? Come on now.
0: <laughs> I to, to 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 be honest I didn't and, and to to a certain I must I will admit that Basil Zaharoff I, I thought wow what a great character she's created <laughs> So I mean that that's a, the level of education so I think you did a a, a hell of a good job
2: <laughs> Well
1: that's that's what I always aim for is to have made up people and real life people who are equally vivid and equally plausible um and it's always it's always tough with real life people who are sort of bigger than life because you think they're not they're not going to seem real i mean looking looking at basil zaharoff in this thing he just sort of sounds like somebody that i mean surely the world couldn't have actually witnessed somebody this dreadful um but uh, but there he was, and you think in this day and age he, he becomes all too plausible, does he not?
0: <laughs> now now I'm guessing that uh, Rafe Ainsley uh, was created, and, and yeah. I I really enjoyed him. You really nailed that kind of character of the uh, pretentious oh. artist uh, sculptor, <laughs> yeah. Who who does have a couple of grains of talent, maybe, but but is just really hard to even listen to (laughs) except in (laughs) fiction Uh, talk about creating that guy and and working him into your the the seams of the novel which i think you do a really good job of he he starts out with some seams and and it uh goes further in the weave than uh the reader expects which is just why we enjoy these books
1: (laughs) yeah i mean it's it's always, it's always tricky because and especially because someone like me I don't write to an outline. So when I introduce a character um, whether it's you know somebody who is in the forefront or somebody who is in the background, I, I'm never quite sure that they are going to end up being what I what I intend them to be. So that, if I pick somebody and I think, "Oh, here's my bad guy," and I get halfway through the book and I think, "Well, no, because
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: this guy here would be a much better bad guy, so I, I sort of had various um you know various characters like that in here, and uh, again without giving away spoilers of who who done it or whatever um it, it's part of the it's part of the thing that interests me. <clears throat> in the writing of a stories because with my first draft I'm basically telling myself the story I'm I'm watching it as it's unfolding and hoping to surprise myself as I go along so I I think it helps in the long run because if I'm surprising myself probably I'm surprising readers as well
0: Exactly, uh, I you feel that surprise. We experience the story the way you write it, and if you're writing it with surprise in your mind, then we as readers experience those same surprises. And we we were talking earlier about seaplanes. I, I must say that as soon as you put a Picasso on the wall, <laughs> I was hoping he would show up. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and he, because. What I knew about Picasso was that he seems like he'd be a, a, a fun guy to, to witness in a book like this, and he's a blast. Uh, when you're writing these books, how closely do you like look for the cracks in history where you can fit him in and have him work him at your will without uh, bending history too much?
2: Yeah,
1: I, I because I am what, <clears throat> what they call a recovering academic, <laughs> um <laughs> you know when i when i first start writing a book i well certainly when i first finish a book i could i could footnote and, and pretty much everything along the way so that if i have characters who are in the south of france in july 1925 i generally make an effort <clears throat> to find out if they could plausibly have been there um And, and sometimes, sometimes they're they're not actually there. Sometimes it's obvious that they are elsewhere. And in that case, I I usually drop them because it just makes me too uncomfortable to, uh, you know, to know that, no, they couldn't have been there. (laughs) But, you know, like, for example, um, Zelda and F. Scott Fitzgerald were kind of up and down all over um, that, that summer. And, and so it, it's believable that they would have been there,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, but that's why, for example, Hemingway doesn't get a walk-on part because the the Murphys don't actually meet him until later in the year. Mm. Well, you know, it's only like five months out, and I could have lied, but I would have known, and people who knew Hemingway's biography would have known that they didn't meet till later. So I, I you know, I, I tend to sort of. It's always awful when I write something and really depend on it, and then find out it can't be. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, so that could be problematic. When
1: that, when that happens, when that happens, I almost always put a note in the after notes um, to say that you know Miss Russell claims that he was there in this this time, but he you know elsewhere it says that he was here, and I'm not sure which was right. But I, I didn't have to do that here because I had I had discovered <clears throat> where Hemingway was before that.
0: <laughs> One of the things you mentioned, the, the Russians earlier on, and I think that uh, this book gets a really nice, uh, a good dash of Anastasia. I, I Long ago, I, I read a, a book about Catherine the Great and, and uh, that Russian history is so compelling and so full of uh, passion and craziness and over-the-topness. It, it's really nice to see them see uh, some show up in in this book and you know it, it it seems feels really natural when you bring them on
1: yeah well w- when i when i went to monaco um the the place that i stayed in i i, I looked around for a place that had been around in 1925 and the, the, of course the bigger hotels all were um and i chose the hermitage because of its sort of alternate history of being where the russians went it wasn't it wasn't necessarily where all the english turned up um, but it was it was a, a favorite with um the tsar's people when they would go down and you know one family would hire out an entire floor of the hotel and uh, and spend the winter months there so I, I thought that was a kind of interesting, um, an interesting sort of setting for uh, a story, especially when I came across Zoharoff, and especially because of the whole idea of what happened to the Tsar's gold after after the revolution.
2: <laughs>
1: and, and it's fascinating to do that kind of research because you end up you, you end up going down the most convoluted rabbit holes online (laughs) looking looking for what what happened to the czar's gold and and so you follow one thing and this is so it turned up here and and then you find out that all of the claims that it turned up here are based on one blog post (laughs) that some guy wrote (laughs) Or, or or one newspaper article in the Siberian Times. <laughs> <laughs> Probably
0: not then, the most reliable journey, journalism in the Siberian well, no, Times. No,
1: no, not so much. <laughs> and and then and then you find this other place where um, somebody somebody decoded um, a, a map and description that was left in some bank vault and. And the and then, and that too, you think okay, this is where and that's where they found it, and this is and you follow that too, and it just kind of disappears, and you think, so it's probably still out there. <laughs>
0: uh, you know, I I have to ask, I think one of the the, the things that you did that was uh, fairly gutsy was to transform Mrs. Hudson, who's always been kind of you know an Aunt B presence. In, in the Sherlock Holmes books, into like a fully fledged character in the, in your previous book about her. So, talk about. Uh, tell me, did you get a, much blowback? Were people missing Aunt B?
1: <laughs> you know, I I think that <laughs> I have a feeling my readers a little are a little more forgiving than most. <laughs>
2: Uh, well, her, her well, alternate
1: well. takes on history <laughs> i can't imagine why rick <laughs> um but i i i mean when i wrote that other book the murder of mary russell um the the reason behind it was the idea that here you have this woman who had stuck with sherlock holmes for all these years as her tenant and then in, in my series, she actually follows him to Sussex. But, of course, that's not in Conan Doyle's. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but in my series, she follows him to Sussex, which gives you a character that forces you to ask, why? I mean, why would any self-respecting, sensible woman do that? <laughs> because Sherlock Holmes must have been a nightmare to live with. Oh, yeah. You know, it's just a, a crazy man. And so I started playing with ideas for this this other book, The Murder of Mary Russell, and particularly with the fact that uh, Conan Doyle has three different characters named Hudson in his books, who are, as far as Conan Doyle is concerned, completely unrelated. I think he forgets that he uses names. But he has a character who was a, a would-be blackmailer, who was Holmes's very first case as a young man, he has Mrs. Hudson, and he has this other guy who runs a shop that's in one of the, one of the uh, cases, um, and there's no word anywhere in the Conan Doyle stories that any of them are related. But I thought, well, what if they were? So you have this woman who is related to a blackmailer, who goes to work for Sherlock Holmes for decades. And who then um, <clears throat> becomes the center of the, the story in the, the murder of Mary Russell. And I thought, surely this woman has an interesting backstory. Surely she has considerably more wit and backbone and um, opinion than she's generally allowed to have, in, certainly in the Conan Doyle stories, but even in mine. And that's where those books started. So in Riviera Gold, you get to see that theory that she is more than she looks uh, really open up. And you see exactly who she is. She's a woman of nearly 70 who, when she finally gets her freedom, um, is very clear on what she wants and what she doesn't.
0: (laughs) Well, I really like the way that the character is opened up, and I think you do a really good job of revealing things. Talk. You write a bit about this in one of the afterwards to this book, which are also really fun. We'll get to those. But um, we, we get snippets of her conversations in between uh, Mary Russell's Story. So, talk about uh, creating whole chunks of story out of essentially pure dialogue.
1: I like the, I like the potential that you can get if you can structure um, a section of nothing but dialogue. I mean, there's a purity about it. I find that I don't like it when it goes on for long. Mm -hmm. And you have to take a lot of care so that it's clear who's speaking (laughs) because (laughs) after you get about four or five lines, if it's not – if there's not a name put in or um, some small gesture that's added, um, it it becomes confusing as to who's speaking. But
0: I have to say that never happened to me in this, never once. And now that you mention it, that has happened in – in other books, where you have to kind of backtrack, go wait, wait, who's talking? But no, this you do a fantastic job with about that. Wow,
1: it's also I think it's also something that that modern writers um, need to keep in mind as they're putting words on a page. That so many people now listen to audiobooks mm. I mean, I'm afraid nobody has listened to this one in an audio yet because that lockdown got in the way of recording. So <laughs> <laughs> it's now been delayed until September, apparently. Um, wow. But, but the um, the audiobook is a different experience from the page.
0: Oh, For absolutely. For example, on the
1: page, it skips over the words he said, but the ear can't, so that if you have too many he said, she said <clears> – <throat> kind of taps on the eardrum in a way that can become irritating. Whereas mm. if you take care to, for example, make the person have a gesture and then the, <clears throat> the bit of speech is just connected right out of that, it's easier for the audio reader and, and listener to, to keep it smooth and to make those speech tags disappear. So, so that part of it is is an awareness of audiobooks, but also because I, I, you know, on the on the page, you're wanting a back and forth and back and forth and back and forth rhythm, that that isn't easy to get if you have to stick in he said she said all the time.
0: So the uh, n- inclusion of audiobooks as a final format influences your writing in a manner that actually forces more discipline on yourself so that improves the reading experience as well as providing a a more uh fluid audio uh experience as well
1: yeah oh yeah and it's also i mean i've always i i always read a book aloud um in the final in the final version um the proof pages i always read aloud Um, partly because that's a good way of catching anything that, that isn't, that you think is there, it isn't, or vice versa. But it also kicks out those words that are homonyms and, and are misleading. If, um, if the person is listening to it and they think you're talking about one thing and if they could see it on a page, they'd know what you meant. (laughs) But if they just hear it, they, for a minute, they're saying, what, (laughs) So it, quite often I'll change a word um, in in the proof pages um, because that sound is not instantly clear as to the meaning.
0: Now, when you went into this, did you know what the mystery was going to be or did you just launch yourself in and say, all right, go? Uh,
1: let's see. With this one... <clears throat> I mean there's there are actually two or three mysteries in, in this one that inter intertwine. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> there's Mrs. Hudson and her bearer bonds, which is a continuation from the first the first one that had her in it. And there's the question of of the gold. And you know, is there is the Russian gold going to surface somewhere in here? Um, there's the question of the murder and -hmm. where that comes from. And, and there's also this, this sort of sub mystery that has to do with, um, with the family of Mrs. Hudson's landlady Mm
2: -hmm.
1: who are, who who are somehow involved with it. So you have these different threads that wrap together and, and some of them are quite neatly tied off and the mystery is finished. Others not so much, and I and I think that so long as the writer plays fair with the reader, when it comes to the main crime, that is, you know, the murder itself, mm-hmm. um, and solves that, I think that having certain questions left is not necessarily a bad thing. Well, I mean, especially in a series.
0: Yeah, exactly. That in the in the series, uh, do you do you know how far the arc goes from this?
1: No. <laughs> tell me how long I'm gonna live, Rick.
0: <laughs> oh, good. That's good to hear. Now,
1: and, and I'll and I'll tell you how many books I got left.
0: <laughs> now, one of the things that's fun to read about this is that you can come up upon phrases like. Even without the threat of a second war. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, talk about writing something that's where you know the history before and after. So, I mean, with much fiction, you
2: don't necessarily
0: know what has happened before to these fictional characters, and you certainly don't know what's going to happen after them. So uh, I think that uh, does the... Do the confines of history make it easier for you to navigate or or more difficult?
1: Writing historical fiction um, has some, I mean, it has some drawbacks because obviously people know in general terms how something is going to turn out. You know, it's hard to write, it's hard to write about the threat of an apocalypse for a book that's set in the past. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because you kind of think, well, well, no, it did, didn't happen as far as I know. Um, but it also enables, I, I mean, on the other hand, it, the positive side is that it enables the writer to play some fun games with their reader. So that, you know, you can kind of do a, a, a nudge nudge of we know what's coming even though the characters don't. Um. And, and I think that I, I, I think I probably use it in almost all the books of in, in a general way um, making reference to the situation <clears throat> the situation that's current to her at the time and wondering if it's going to stay that way. Well the reader knows that, that it's not.
0: So, the readers of, of 2030 know how our situation is going to turn out.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we hope so. <laughs> we, we hope for yeah. our readers
1: in 2030. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I'm a little less sanguine about this than I was a few years ago, but you know, we, we sort of assume that people will still be opening books then. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you, you know, um, uh, you do a, you, you've Put Lori on on a boat for for a uh, part the journey, and, and I thought you did a really good job, you know, creating that kind of atmosphere because Lori, or Russell. Uh, Mary Russell, Russell okay. does not sorry, <laughs> Russell, da, you know, it does not want to just like ride things out. She wants to participate in it, and so I talk about uh the research for that and and just adding that aspect to Russell's character, which is really fun. And and it makes perfect sense.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a problem because I had wanted to start this, um, in, with the trip between Venice and the South of France. And obviously you can take the train, um, I mean in 1925 you could even have flown but it wouldn't be there wouldn't have been much of a reason to. But um but I thought you know she she has the opportunity to explore friendship in this book in the way she, that she doesn't always. Um I thought she that she learns a lot about not only friendship but family in in the book and to to put her with these people her own age who are not involved in any kind of case, there isn't any time pressure, There, there is just this simple bonding that I don't think I had ever done before in any of the books. I'd never let her just form a friendship. <clears throat> she always has you know, sort of a brief friendship will come up and then there'll, there'll be a murder and you have to do this and they're involved with it. Whereas this one, even the death that is in is in the book isn't directly related to the characters that she becomes friends with. It, it's, I mean, it sort of overlaps the life, but not, not in a way that affects her feelings about them. So I, I, I thought, you know, it was an interesting way of of building on her personality.
0: Well, I think one of the things you mentioned in this book too, where you, she built on her personality, is uh, you know that that she's she's killed somebody, and it's, it was nice. It was it felt right? To have a character who has killed somebody ruminate upon that, and outside of the the book or the scene in which it took place, and to have that event affect how she perceives, you know, the world around her and the people around her and what's being done, and and you know, because she participates in lots of murder mysteries, murder itself, I think that that this is a, you know, it's it's unusual because. You, you, you'll you read many a series where, you know, it, it it's, you know, death on wheels. <laughs> but maybe, you know, those wheels always go past the death and the deaths don't trail along behind, which they do in this book. And I think that that's, you know, a, a smart observation.
1: Well, it's always tricky as a writer, isn't it, Especially when you're doing a series like this, because <clears throat> um, you... You don't want a reader to need to have read the previous books. And this series is getting fairly long now. So there's no reason why there should be baggage from every single story. On the other hand, this one is only three months after that. And so to have somebody who continues to dive in, into you know one adventure after another it's fine because it's nice and distracting, but as soon as you stop being distracted, you have to turn around and face what is there with you. And I, and I thought this was about the time for her to at, at least have some, as you say, reflection on, on the thing. Um, it's, I mean, these are, some people categorize these as, as cozies which, generally speaking, are not, um, you know, not gritty, hard-edged books. Um, on the other hand, I think that they are very human books. I, I, I really try and make the characters um, fully dimensional. And part of that is their history. Part of that is their talents, um, their weaknesses, their relationships. Um, and I think that at a certain point when you have trauma in in somebody's life it it undermines that character if you have the trauma be a sort of temporary thing um, I mean it's it's boring in fiction to dwell on something
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and to have to have the entire be-all and end all of a character based on Something that happened in their backstory is, you know, it's just more tedious than anybody needs. But to acknowledge it, I think, is necessary. And to grow around it and grow from it is is necessary.
0: Uh, speaking of weaknesses, uh, Mary Russell discovers a weakness in one of the casinos. I'm I wondering if we will see more of that.
1: <laughs> what her, her her penchant for gambling? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those cases where a writer has to write something. And um, I I mean, I have absolutely no genetic um, predisposition for for gambling. I mean, it's the most meaningless thing in the world to me. I I can't see why anybody would do it.
0: Yeah, I'm with you on that one.
1: Uh, and 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 so i i had to i had to sort of have her explore that and begin to think, Oh, i kinda understand <laughs> so but it it's it's totally fantasy because i i would i can't i can't see why anyone would want to to spend their time doing that um but clearly people do <laughs> uh, i
0: i thought you did uh, you mentioned that you stayed at the hermitage and, yeah. and i thought you'd I felt like you must have because the descriptions of the hotel were not, not only had lots of detail, but you seemed to really capture the atmosphere, that kind of like slightly run down, once grand, still moderately popular kind of a feeling that, that certain, you know, tourist, one time tourist traps now more like, you know, they check in and and they check out pretty quickly too.
1: (laughs) Well, now it is extremely grand. Um, mm. It is it is renovated. It's extremely grand. I mean, I felt like the cleaning lady there. It was such a funny, <laughs> funny place because I stayed there two nights, which was a, really all I could afford. And um, and and I, I mean, I I was granted I was at the tail end of seven weeks on the road, so I was a little bit <laughs> a little bit run down. I was not wearing the kind of clothes that anyone else in the building was wearing. <laughs> so I, I really was a fly on the wall for all of it. But, um, but, but it was a fascinating place. And they, I mean, they were very friendly and helpful and all the rest of it. It was just, I really didn't fit in there.
0: <laughs> well, now, um, I would. Mary is the main character in, in these books, obviously, and and Sherlock's uh, also a main character. He, he's kind of out of this book a little bit more, and I think that's what gives Mary the chance to make those those friendships. Talk about that decision, and, and also maybe uh, I I'm hoping that this book leads to where I'm where I where it looks like it might be going at least. <laughs>
1: You like the vampires? Yeah, I'm,
0: I, I want to see Sherlock Holmes versus Dracula. <laughs>
1: um, y- yeah, I I think that, um, I mean, these books that I always, I always find that people love the scenes most that have the two of them together, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and they always complain if there's too much of it where they're apart, um, but it doesn't work to have them together all the time as as much um i think that much of island of the mad they were together but there, even there there were fairly long scenes where they went off and did different things and then came back together so i i think they're more interesting when they each have their chance to go off and be them rather than be the two of them together um. So uh, yeah, it's I, I. I think that I think that with a series like this, they have to be together for a lot of it, but they they have to t- have something to tell the other one too. So <laughs> otherwise, they have nothing to talk about.
0: <laughs> well, I, I thought you do a you do a good job of of divvying up the the duties, and it's nice to see uh, Mary you know really display some, some chutzpah and, and you know to to the kind of this competition between the two that i think is pretty pretty interesting as well <laughs>
1: yeah yeah those are always fun when she <clears throat> and she manages to get the better of him so but that, i mean that's been true since the first book hasn't it and the,
0: mm-hmm.
1: the, the first book she manages to to make him think that, that she's a a, a boy <laughs>
0: Now, uh, it, we are well into the, the future and I think we're currently, are we in the future now where Sherlock Holmes, ha, has he fallen out of copyright?
1: Um, there are still, uh, let's see. I think there's still eight stories under copyright. Um, t- two of them, two of them went, um, went back into public domain this January. Mm. Um, I believe the estate is claiming that there's still three years because you have three years to um, to lay a claim against it. so they're saying that they have another three years on them, which uh, okay. Um, so there's there's a, a few tail end ones so that the last seven, eight, depending on how how you judge it, stories um, are are under copyright. But the character himself, Sherlock Holmes, the main characters: Mrs. Hudson, Doctor Watson, Mycroft Holmes, Inspector Lestrade, all the rest of them. Um, those are established as being public domain. Uh,
0: and that leads me to my next question: uh, How are we looking? How good are we looking for to see this come to film? It seems like this would be a unnatural that it, they're they're made for it to be movies.
1: There's a production company in england that has the option on um on doing they wanted to do a a, a series of series i think they're looking at three or four uh, series in the in the british sense of like eight or ten i think
2: mm-hmm.
1: um per series based on beekeeper and let's see beekeeper at o jerusalem and monstrous Regiment. i think they're, they're looking at now I, I can't really remember i haven't seen the scripts yet mm. um but they are I, fortunately none of it is far enough along that it got hit by lockdown um mm-hmm. you know i feel so sorry for anybody who was just about to start filming because <laughs> there they are looking at the green screen and thinking maybe hey, we could do this <laughs> um but you know fortunately this one is is not that far along, so they're still they're still in the writing process, and that's easy enough to do um you know collaboratively on on a screen
0: yeah now uh i this the lockdown might have stopped film production it has not stopped book production uh where are you going next?
1: well, towards the end of friviera gold um Holmes makes a joke about Romania because he's been off to Romania, and he makes a joke about vampires.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, and and Russell isn't quite certain whether to take him seriously or not because you, you know Sherlock Holmes and jokes are a sort of tricky thing. <laughs> so um, so in in the next book, um, which I th- I think the working title is Castle Shade. All right. Um, uh, yeah, and and that one they they set off for Romania, <clears throat> and I mean obviously the thematic element of vampires um, enters in because they're going to the part of Romania that's known as Transylvania, which it actually is pronounced that way to my pleasure. Oh, uh, not not just Bello Lugosi pronounces it that way.
0: Nice. People who
1: are actually Transylvanians do. Um, And and so they they go off there, and that's where I am now. I'm about, I guess I'm about a third of the way into a first draft. I'm hoping to finish it um, in the first draft in a couple of months.
0: Wow, I can hardly wait. Uh, (laughs) Were you planning on traveling to Romania? Oh, I've been there. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, wow. Uh, a
1: couple years ago, on the same trip that went to to uh, to Monaco, mm.
2: um,
1: a couple of years ago, a couple uh, some friends of mine who run the Poison Pen Bookshop in, in Scottsdale said, hey, we're going on a river cruise for the Lower Danube. Why don't you come? And I said, oh, okay. Okay. Um, and because I'd never been on a cruise, I'd never been to that part of Eastern Europe. I'd never, and so I thought, well, you know, why not? So I went off uh, as a sort of a, a tardy celebration of my sixty-fifth birthday, <laughs> a couple years late, but you know, more or less.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and um, and we we started the tour in in Bucharest, Romania. <clears throat> With a an overnight trip up into the mountains of Transylvania, and back, and then we did the rest of it was on after that was on um, on the river on the Danube, and it was it was fascinating. I just I fell in love with Romania because it's such an unlikely place. It's this you know this place that's been squabbled over and fought over for its entire existence. Um, Its language is. Latin-based, um, surrounded by Slavic countries and, and, you know, Russian from one side, um, it, when, when it joined the common market, um, the the EU made them all get tractors because they were all, you know, farming with horses. And so they, you know, Romanian farmers took the tractors and said, okay, we'll use the tractors. And they farmed away. And then of course, the tractors all broke down and they parked them in the back of the barn and went back to their horses, except in the, in the, in the 10 years between those two things, the world had changed. And the EU now said, oh, look, you're doing sustainable agriculture. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Romania said, OK. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, Romania has gone from being the sort of, you know, feudal society version of the common market to being the cutting edge, modernistic, sustainable Green solution. Right, There and you go. And I, I just love it. I, just, I think it's such a kick. And of course it had this horrible, horrible period of communism. I mean, mm. this guy, Ceaușescu, was just a nightmare. And it went on and on and on and just just devastated the countryside. But, you know, the people, are cheerful away, and they're farming away, and they're horses. And... <laughs> i trying to convince you that this part of the world is, you know, where where, where Dracula came from. And you think, okay, go Romania. <laughs> uh,
0: I am looking forward to that with sharpened teeth and bated breath. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Lori R. King is the author of the new book, Riviera Gold. Thank you for joining me, Lori.
1: A pleasure as always, Rick.